This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Lucy Vincent, and for the past four years, my life has been consumed by prison food. In 2016, I founded Food Behind Bars. We've become the UK's only charity dedicated to transforming the food served in British prisons. This podcast tells the story of prison food through the people who've experienced it firsthand. We're now halfway through the series and hopefully a little closer in understanding what mealtimes mean behind bars and what an improvement could mean for all of us. For the first half of this series, we've heard from a lot of male voices um, and and men who have experienced the prison system. And um, I'm very aware of that. And it's very easy when talking about prisons to speak about it as if it's a male problem, because the majority of prisons are men's prisons. But actually, it's not the case. The impact of prison food affects both genders and it affects them both in the same way and also in lots of different ways. And that's something that I've educated myself on over the years. When I first launched Food Behind Bars as a campaign, I actually started focusing on the issue from a female perspective. Um, The first article I ever wrote was about what women eat in prison. And so when this journey began, I was actually looking at it from a female perspective. It was only when I then started going into prisons and spending a lot of time in them that it kind of went the other way because... You know, I was spending a lot of time in men's prisons and looking at it kind of from a male perspective. The one thing that I that I learned early on is that a lot of men, when they come to prison, they use food as fuel and they get very into the gym and physicality and protein. We've already spoken about the fact that, that tinned tuna is the most popular item on a canteen menu. Anything with chicken is the most popular item on a prison menu. And for women... That wasn't really the case that I was finding. Um, For the majority of women, they weren't coming into prison and suddenly focusing on kind of bulking up and fitness, not the majority of them. Um, And so food played a different part in their prison experience. And that part was a more emotional and mental role that it was having on them. And I was speaking to women who were already struggling with their emotional well-being um, for different reasons, for things that had happened to them prior to prison, and also the effect that prison was having on their emotional well-being. I think women get a lot of pleasure. I certainly do. I get a huge amount of pleasure for cooking for people um, and providing for people and having that shared experience. And um, particularly, you know, for children, uh, your own children and your loved ones for cooking for them. So when that's taken away from you um, and you're apart from your loved ones and you don't have that really important connecting experience that is cooking for your children, I can imagine it leaves you feeling very empty and very hollow. 
I did spend some time working in the kitchen of a women's prison. And that was my first experience of um, a women's prison. And I absolutely loved it. Um, I, it was a different experience for me because I was around women. And so I guess there was a different level of, of connection there that I felt. Um, I mean, one thing I really noticed is, you know, I was leaving the prison every day with a headache because it was just like chaos and chatter and laughter and yelling and everything. It was like, yeah, it, it was. And, and, and a lot of people see men's prisons like that. But actually, my experience with this was that women's prisons, there was a different kind of energy that was fizzing there and particularly in the kitchen. And it's because, I guess... We display our emotions in a different way, you know, often in a slightly more vocal way. There was a lot of competition and rivalry. There were cliques. Um, there was a lot of banter and joking. Um, there were tantrums. You know, and this really was on an hourly basis, the kind of stuff that I was seeing. So it was a bit different. And on the flip side as well, women's prisons are often um, smaller in capacity. So you've got a few hundred people in the prison. Um, they feel slightly different. Um, you know, taking the food, for example. Uh, there's often communal dining opportunities in women's prisons, which was the first time that I'd seen that and I'd seen that play out. So, yeah, it was a completely different experience for me and, and, and one that I connected with on a, on a different level because um, it resonated with me slightly more. Hello. Hey, is that Sophie? Yes, it is. It's Lucy. Hi, Lucy. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? I first met Sophie in 2016. She was the first ever person I spoke to about prison food. And at this time, I hadn't even started Food Behind Bars. I was just researching for the article that I wrote about what women eat in prison. And I got put in touch with her. And then what happened is over the years, I kept using her experiences and her the things that she told me um, with her permission. Um, and they've been relevant for the last four and a half years. You know, Sophie's still kind of the one person that I think of when I think about yeah, the general impact of, of prison food. So um, I went to prison in 2007 when I was 21. Um, and prior to that, I'd been a young carer for my mum. So like the cooking responsibilities and stuff fell on me. So I'd, I've always cooked from scratch um, ever since I went to cook. There's never anything out of a jar or anything like that. It was always cooking proper food. So that was, I was love baking, I love making soups, I love doing roast dinner and lasagnas and stuff. So food was like a really integral part of my daily life. It always has been. And then obviously going to prison, that gets completely taken away from you. The freedom of choice, all that sort of stuff just goes. Um, and so that made the transition to prison much harder than it needed to be, really. Yeah, Sophie was very open with me. She was very open about her experiences in prison the fact that she was naughty in prison, I think she ended up going to like three or four prisons um, during her sentence. What I got from her is this real strength of after prison coming out and we're talking about food here, really wanting to, to change her life. And I think she felt helpless for so many years in prison. She Her weight had spiralled out of control. There was that layer of not feeling good about herself as a result and she came out and and wanted to change that and has changed that. And, you know, the, the great part of Sophie's story is her relationship with food now and what it means to her. 
Oh, it was just horrific. I remember lining up in the canteen with just a bunch of women on my first day there. I got to prison quite late. Um, I've been on, in the police cells for four nights, I think, before I ended up in prison. And uh, so I'd just been eating crap police food, like microwavable all-day breakfast and crunching up cornflakes with milk in the corner of the packet. And yeah, so the food I'd eaten prior to that was really poor as well. And I went to prison and been in the canteen with all these women feeling really hungry but also feeling really sick and not wanting to eat and the food it just smelled like how a school canteen smells two hours after it's closed so like just that really horrible oily stench in the air that, that just smells old and I was just like oh god is this what it's going to be like and I remember having a, a menu thrust at me and you have to tick off you have to pre-plan for the whole week what you want to eat from the really poor choices so if you ever fancy eating something and you've not chosen it tough, you're not going to get to eat it. The menu itself sounded all right, but the actual food that came out wasn't quite what the menu gave you the idea it would be. Mm. Um, yeah, that that the and when you arrive in prison, you get given a reception bag which has got a bottle of squash and a packet of biscuits and about ten tea bags in. And actually, those biscuits became such an important thing to me because they're the only thing that really tasted like how they were meant to taste. I think what was so interesting in talking to Sophie four or five years on was the level of detail that she was recounting of her time in prison and to do with the food. You know, she could talk about those specific, you know, coffee breaks, um, canteen getting delivered on a Friday, picking up your meal from the servery, skipping dinner, the breakfast packs, you know, and, and, and then on top of that, these meals that kind of last in her memory, for instance, the jacket potato with real butter, you know, it was the first time she'd had, you know, a real knob of butter instead of margarine um, for so long. And, and that stays in her memory. You know, it was a really positive food memory. Um, the Kit Kat junk chunkies and the crisps and the snacking and how that made her feel. Um, she remembers all of it very clearly and it, and it builds a picture for us listening of what it must be like it was mainly just carbs so you'd have possibly chips and pasta in one meal and then you just go and lie in your bed over bang up over lunch and then you get unlocked again so you're just eating all this really calorie dense meal and you're just going to lie in bed after eating it like roast dinners were crap it was like sliced turkey and potatoes that were rock solid and gray inside um so you try and avoid that it was i think i remember you telling me that you broke a plastic knife on a roast potato was it something like that <laughs> yeah it bent the tip of it yeah <laughs> yeah I remember that um, I always chose food that um the foreign nationals had cooked so like when the Jamaicans and the Africans and the Indians were cooking their curries and jerk chicken and stuff then that was the food that I'd choose because that was the food that tasted best they cooked it with love whereas a lot of the people who worked in the prison kitchens generally were just there because it was you know they get longer out their style they weren't there because they actually loved cooking they weren't there because they wanted to make food taste good it was just because it was a job that paid well she made me realize what it must feel like when meal times are the marker of each day and when those meals are disappointing or they don't do anything to boost your mood how that can impact you emotionally physically and mentally partly due to the food but i think mainly due to the fact that you are like i said eating that many carbs and then not there's no chance to exercise 
I mean, I'd say my step count was probably about 2,000 a day if I was lucky mm. um, on a good day. So there was no opportunity to burn off the food you're eating. The food quality was so poor. Like, I didn't eat bread while I was in there because the bread was generally mouldy. Um, I might have, like, a fried slice on um, the fry-up on a Saturday in my last prison. But I avoided bread because it, you just end up picking the mould off. So I, when I came out of prison, I couldn't eat bread. My body didn't recognise it anymore. Um, and so I've got intolerances now to food that I never had before. So it made me fat, made me lethargic, made my skin bad, made my hair bad, made me sleep bad. Um, just really affected a lot, affected my mental health because it, it's just eating crap. There's no, there's no nourishment, you know, you're not feeding anything good. Like you're not giving your body what it needs. It affects every aspect. Couldn't focus at work properly when I was working in prison or when I was doing education and you're constantly going oh it'll be coffee break soon and then you can have biscuits you're thinking about the biscuits you can have because they taste good or you're like oh it's Thursday I get canteen today so you're like right I can skip dinner because I'm gonna eat loads of Kit Kat chunkies and loads of crisps that I've ordered but then the Friday comes you've got no food you've eaten it all in one day I think for a lot of people in prison or when I was there particularly with women serving short sentences for drug crimes they're just happy to be being fed yeah um I mean my my lifestyle before prison didn't see me eating a lot of food because I was too busy taking drugs and whatever. But I'd always, whatever I ate was what I had cooked myself. Whereas a lot of these people coming in, they've got no, no home outside. So they're not, they weren't eating. So actually being given those calories and they get given, um, like nourishment drinks, which, um, allows them to gain more weight quicker. That food worked well for them because they needed calorie dense meals. But for people who didn't need that, the food didn't work for them. Had we been fed proper food, there would be, people would be looking, there'd be something to look forward to. You'd be looking forward to having lunch. Sophie mentions that a lot of of the women that she was in prison with had a really poor relationship with food beforehand. And I think that's indicative of a lot of the prison system, really, and people who might have lived quite chaotic lifestyles. The downside of that, and she touches on it, is that then it can become a continuation of bad habits and they can get exemplified in prison because of the snacking and the food that's available to you. Um, And it's an interesting idea that, you know, I often say, you know, what if prison could provide the opposite? You know, what if it could provide um, really healthy food that actually changes people's habits and breaks that cycle Um, and enables them to live a really good quality of life on the outside. Um, Whereas what Sophie talks about ultimately is is kind of the opposite. It's people with a poor relationship with food anyway and prison making that relationship that little bit poorer. I remember when I was in HMP Send, at that time they had an amazing kitchen team and the food was great. You'd go in and you choose what you want on the day. You don't choose it from a a menu. And Thursday was jacket potato day and we got real butter and it was the first time in about a year that I'd had real butter in my jacket potato. And it was the most, I, I, like, I love jacket potatoes now because of that. That was always like a highlight of the week was, for me was having jacket potatoes with chilli or with tuna or with cheese or beans, or whatever I wanted. You could just choose it. And so that freedom of choice on the day, it was like, you go to a restaurant, you don't, you don't want to pre-choose what you're eating. Like when I pre-order my Christmas meals for work, by the time it gets to the day, I don't want to eat what I've ordered. I want to eat something else. Of course. Being able to go up to the server and pick whether she wanted cheese and beans or, or tuna and sweet corn, 
was a huge thing for her and and she talks about that she said that it impacted her emotionally and kind of you know essentially elevated her her prison experience and something that seems quite small again everything on the inside is it's with a magnifying glass you know it's it's amplified she mentions that it made her feel like a real human you know and i think that just shows that food is it's humanizing when it's done well having that freedom of choice reflects the way that we live our lives on the outside and the way that we eat on the outside is we choose what we want to eat when we want to eat it um and in prison that's not the case so any element of choice even as simple as your jacket potato topping um is a huge and very powerful thing this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, so in the first prison, which was Eastwood Park, which was Raman Prison, I was there for six months. We ate collectively in a canteen, and you'd go wing by wing, so you'd never mix with people from off your wing at dinner time. And you'd sit down, you eat, and then you'd get shunted out, and then the next wing would come in. Um, in HMP Send, again, you eat just with your wing um, in a canteen, and you queue up at the servery, and they shout what the officer will shout what you've chosen. And then you get fed that food. Um, obviously not in San you could choose what you wanted. And then in Downview, we had areas to eat food in, but they were never open, either A, due to short staffing, or B, because there was a lot of trouble brewing in the prisons and they had to keep you know people separate. So you'd line up wing by wing to go and get your food. And on sea wing, there were eight landings. So you'd have, I don't know, about 80 people on a landing, between 40 and 80 people in London and if you're the last landing by the time you get down to the survey there's no food left because they've been over generous with the portions um, and then you just take your food and you go and sit in your cell so you're sat on a bed and you've got a toilet less than a metre away from you with no lid on it because lids get broken so I'm going to replace them and you know your door's two metres away from you six foot by eight foot concrete box and you're just sat in there eating your dinner you're banged up so you're eating it whilst behind your door and you've got an hour and a half until you get let out for afternoon activities. It was one thing that I noticed when I was in a women's prison that there were some elements of communal dining, which is fantastic. I think as well, what's interesting is she speaks about her experience of, of having it and then her experience of being transferred to a prison that didn't have it. And that almost feels kind of kind of cruel, really. It's like, you know, you had something, you had that little element of freedom um, and then it got taken away from you and... In that particular prison, she really kind of painted a picture of that that feeling of eating in your cell, you know, which is something that comes up again and again when we talk about prison food. But she paints that picture 
so clearly, you know, you're sat there, you're next to your toilet, the way that the food smells, the fact that she wasn't able to wash up properly, that they weren't even finishing their meals anyway. So there was kind of leftover food that was kind of going bad next to her. And I can imagine how damaging that would be when you've had uh, a little taste of what it, what it, you know, the other side, I suppose, which she ment- mentions has, you know, you have a whole sense of community by just sitting around a table with a few other women on your wing. Um, and that's something I've certainly seen in prison. It's when it's available, it's very, very positive. But when it's not available, it's another element of prison food that can just degrade your mental and emotional well-being even further. Women generally, we're more concerned about how we look and, you know, how we feel and stuff like that. And so we assimilate a lot of our feelings toward ourselves based on our body image. And a lot of these women would go in in and then they'd meet up for, with their family on visits and they'd be unrecognisable to their children because they've either put on weight or they've lost weight. And if you lose weight, your family going to worry. And if you've put on weight, then it doesn't, you know, you're not the person that your children or your partner remembered you as being. So that had a huge impact because it's something that's out of your control. And women generally are the... I don't know the the cooks of the family, they're the cleaners, you know, they do all the stuff for the family. And having that taken away, you're taking away part of that person's routine and potentially part of their identity. Certainly for me, taking away my ability to cook made me lose part of my identity. Um, I remember going to D Wing at Downview, which is the open wing, and I got okay. given an open status. And we had it was like a toasting machine, but it was flat, it was like a flat griddle pan. And we could order salad boxes to take to work with us when we went to work outside. So I would order one day a box of onions and then the next day a box of peppers and get like a little salad. And I'd go to the griddle pan and I'd put a few herbs and spices on there that I'd smuggled in from working outside. <laughs> and I'd fry up these onions and peppers and it just smelled amazing. Mm. And all the women would be like, oh, can I have some? Can I have some? And then we all started doing it. So we'd start buying wraps and then we'd ha- be having like veggie fajitas until the officers clocked on and then took away the the machine but just being able to do that made such a difference to all of us women because suddenly we were like oh it smells like how it cooks when I cook at home and it was that reminder of this actually is how food should smell rather mm. than what we've been eating like I said often for women their self-worth and self-esteem is is rock bottom regardless and then having to face you know your husband your kids after putting on weight or losing it must just be a horrible, horrible feeling. And it brings us back to this theme of control. When you have control over your life or just over your diet, you know, you feel confident and you feel powerful and you feel good about yourself. But when you don't have control, you feel helpless um, and you don't feel good about yourself. And for Sophie, I think what's kind of incredible about her is she's made this very obvious decision after prison to to take control of her life and of her diet. So I was really lucky when I got granted open status that I also got my wattle, which is released on temporary licence, so I could go home for five days every four weeks from Friday till Tuesday. And where I was in Sutton at Downview, we'd get the bus into town to get to the train station, and almost directly opposite, maybe like 200 metres down the road, was Morrison's. So I'd go in there and buy a big bag of like uh, cos lettuce or, or a ready-made chicken Caesar salad kit and apples and fruit. And I'd sit on the train going back to Wiltshire to my dad's house, 
eating the salad. Um, and that's what I wanted. I wanted fresh stuff. I wanted green stuff. And whenever I got to my dad's, I would literally just go to the village, buy loads of salad stuff and just eat salad with cheese or cheese and biscuits. Um, anything that was fresh. Eggs, boiled eggs. Oh, they were amazing. Mm. Uh, we had chickens that ran around the garden there. So they were proper fresh eggs or making omelettes. Basically, all the food that I didn't know I'd missed in prison, I was just, those were the things that I wanted. I probably got 50 of my five a day in every day when I was at my dad's because it was so important for me just to try and get that vitamin C boost because you don't get fresh fruit and veg in prison. And any fruit that I did get was already going so bad that I just turn it into hooch and just make alcohol with it with the fruit juice because it was already fermenting. How do you make hooch just out of... um... (laughs) What's the process? Um, so we'd get, or oh, I'd get a bottle of Happy Shopper squash, which was rectangular, mm-hmm. a litre bottle, drink it, and then you'd get a bottle of blueberries, pour that in, get some clean socks or new socks sent in, and then you'd open the sock over the top of the bottle and poke it in and mould the opening out, and then you'd fill that with bread and fruit and sugar, tie a knot in it, poke it in, and then seed it. Then you'd lie on its side, push your wardrobe back and it would slot underneath the wardrobe and um yeah then you have to just open it up every couple of days and to stop it fermenting and exploding and then that's how you got alcohol mind blowing <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah so that's what that's the kind of what the the use of the fruit and stuff was in there because you couldn't eat it and then i guess now like taking us back at the present day and um how's your how's your relationship with food changed i mean how, how do you how do you eat now? And I'm just, yeah, I'm just interested okay. in how that's changed. So I've got chickens um, that I keep in my back garden. I've had them for a few years now. Um, so we get our eggs from them. I have got an allotment that I got last, not last year, but the year just before the pandemic started. So I grew all, a lot of fresh vegetables last year, courgettes and tomatoes and peppers and chilies and raspberries and gooseberries, all sorts of different fruits. Um, I forage a lot, so I like going out and getting food for free from the hedgerow and whatnot. Um, and I'm really fortunate that I'm financially able to have more choice in my diet, so I choose not to have cow's milk, for instance, so I'd have like oat milk or, or whatever, just because I know it's better for me personally. Mm. Sophie's story has a good ending when it so easily could not have had one. Even the idea of her coming out of this confined prison cell where she's eating her dinner next to her toilet to having this like idyllic, self-sufficient setup with her chickens is mind-blowing. Um, and you can't help but feel so good for her. Um, and she's taken back control and you can hear that in what she in her voice and, and what she says. She has control over her life control over her diet and as a result you know she's rehabilitated herself and just generally i cook everything from scratch i used a slow cooker when i was out at work before lockdown i'd slow cook everything so i'd come home it'd be a really good meal i plan my food i enjoy being involved with my food i enjoy making up recipes and i've got a smoker so i smoke my own food in the oh garden God, Sophie, you are. <laughs> you're a chef <laughs> but but the, this is how important food is to me and like People always come over and be like, oh, we'll just have something simple to eat. I'm like, well, I don't do simple. Like for me, I show my love for people and how much they mean to me by sharing food with them, by breaking bread with them, I suppose. My relationship with food now 
I think is how it is because of being in prison and having such a poor relationship with it. And like, if I go to a supermarket, I couldn't tell you what stuff is in jars or sauces or stuff like that because it's not something I buy. Everything I do from from scratch. So there's whole areas of the supermarket that I've probably not walked down for five or six years because just go meat, veg, tin tomatoes, and that's it really, and come back out and then, yeah. Thanks, Sophie. Well, look, take care um, and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I just want to thank Sophie for telling her story so effectively and reminding us why prison food is as important in women's establishments as it is in men's. You've been listening to episode four, The Female Problem. This is season one of Food Behind Bars, brought to you by Second Window. If you've enjoyed the show and want to hear more like it, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This show was presented by me, Lucy Vincent, and produced by Second Window. The edit was put together by Taylor Fawcett. Coming up next week, episode five, Institutional Eating.